from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. Before we get started, a little housekeeping. Spotify recently released their 2023 rap notices, which tells listeners and podcasters more about their listening habits and or listener habits. For us, it was a pretty decent year on Spotify. Our followers grew 800%, and dozens of people have us as one of their top 10 most listened to podcasts, which is frankly a lot great and a little humbling, especially when one of them posts on Twitter about your show being one of their favorites. So thank you to Lee Thompson for reaching out to me on Twitter yesterday. I cannot fully express in words how much I appreciate all the time you spent this year listening to me blabber on about old movies. My heart is filled with joy. And Lee, if there's a particular 80s movie that you'd like me to talk about that I haven't covered yet, please let me know. You get a free listener's pick episode. You know where to find me. On this episode, we're going to visit a 1984 movie that was the film debut of Karen Young, a very good actress who teetered between the stage and screen, working with playwrights and directors like Sam Shepard and Andre Konskolovsky, and making absolute Hollywood claptrap like Jaws the Revenge in the 1996 Sylvester Stallone disaster flick, Daylight. Handgun is the name of the movie, released in America as Deep in the Heart. This episode was planned for much later, but this past Monday it was announced that Fun City Editions would be releasing a new 4K digitally restored print of the movie into theaters in early 2024. So, we moved it up. But as always, before we get to the movie, we have to go back a little bit in time. Tony Garnett was a British film and television producer who, for many years, was a producer for Ken Loesch starting with Loesch's breakthrough 1969 feature Kez, all the way through Loesch's 1979 children's film Black Jack. After Garnett ended their association, he would make his writing and directing debut on a drama called Prostitute, which would follow an ambitious call girl from Birmingham, who moves to London in the hopes of a better life for herself and her son. Garnett spent four years researching the lives of hookers in Birmingham and London in order to try create a realistic, an unsensational look at what it was like to exist in that world. The film was not successful in its native England, and it didn't get much play around the world. And Garnett felt like he needed to take a break from the British film industry. So he moved to America, where he quickly became fascinated by the American fetishization of guns and general athapy towards gun violence. He came up with a storyline about a woman who was failed by the police and community leaders after she is raped by her boyfriend at gunpoint and her desire to get revenge on the man who did this to her. Garnett was able to get a development deal with Alan Ladd Jr.'s production company, The Ladd Company, which was based at Warner Brothers and was at that moment in the middle of making one of my favorite movies of all time, Blade Runner. With some development funds in hand, Garnett rented an apartment near Dealey Plaza in Dallas to further immerse himself in the gun culture of America. Although Garnett had little more than an outline of what he was going to do, his agent, Harry Ufland, was able to get the British film company EMI, who had been wanting to work with Garnett for years, to commit to fully financing the expected $3 million budget for the film themselves. Garnett started his search for the lead character Kathleen, a 20-something schoolteacher from Boston who recently moves to Dallas, in New York City, 
they put a notice in backstage, a casting paper for New York and Los Angeles-based performers. The ad simply read, Wanted, 24-year-old Irish Catholic girl with long blonde hair. Although she was only 22 at the time, Karen Young sent her headshot in, and Garnett would quickly set up a time to meet with her. There would be no script, he told her. The film would come out of the rehearsal period he would spend with the actors before filming commenced. The only stipulations would be that she would need to cut off her long hair at one point to show the character's deteriorating mental state, and that for the sake of realism, she would need to be nude for a couple of scenes. Garnett, however, assured Young that if she were naked in a scene, her male co-star also would be. And Garnett had his lead actress. Jim and Kitty Harlan, a married couple in Boston and first-time actors, would be cast as Kathleen's parents, and the remainder of the cast were found locally in Dallas. Garnett would spend three months with his actors in Dallas in the spring of 1981, rehearsing before shooting commenced in early summer. Garnett was particularly sensitive to the shooting of the rape scenes. While the actual acts of rape would not be filmed, he would spend a lot of time blocking the scenes with his two actors, Karen Young and Clayton Day, during rehearsals, so that when it came time to shoot the scene, the only other person on the set would be the cinematographer, Charles Stewart. The shoot went quite well from all accounts, with much surprise coming from the technical crew on just how adept Miss Young came to her firearms handling. She would note herself in a January 1983 interview with the New York Times that now that she knew how simple it was to kill someone with a gun, she was twice as afraid of guns as she was before. Once filming completed, Garnett returned to Los Angeles to begin editing the film. It all came together rather quickly, but as good as the film was, there was something missing. A theme song, if you will something that would bring the film into focus during the end credits. And Tony Garnett had a pretty good idea of who to approach. Someone who could be counted on to write a good song, and who had recently taken up the mantle of the anti-gun crusade. If you don't know who Harry Nielsen is by name, let me give you a quick breakdown of who he was as a singer and songwriter. Harry Nielsen first came to the public attention in the mid-1960s, when several songs he had written and recorded for his early records, it would be re-recorded by other artists, including The Monkees and Three Dog Night. But he'd really get a boost when Derek Taylor, the press officer for The Beatles, introduced the band to Nilsson's work. The band loved what they heard, especially Nilsson's cover of their 1964 hit You Can't Do That, which also name-checked 17 other Beatles songs in the backing vocals. When the Beatles held a press conference in April 1968 to announce the formation of Apple Corps, one reporter asked John Lennon who his favorite American artist was. Lennon simply replied, Nilsson. And when the same reporter asked Paul McCartney who his favorite American group was, he also simply replied, Nilsson. The mutual admiration society between Harry Nilsson and the Beatles would continue to grow over the years, as would Nilsson's star. You might know him from his version of the Fred Neal song Everybody's Talkin' that would become the theme for the 1969 Best Picture Oscar winner Midnight Cowboy. Or you might know his biggest hit, a 1972 cover of the Badfinger song Without You, a band who had been signed to Apple Records with the approval of his friends Lennon and McCartney. Or Coconut, where he sings about putting the lime in the coconut and drinking it all up. Or a number of his other songs like Me and My Arrow or You're Breaking My Heart. In 1973, 
Nielsen joined John Lennon on Lennon's two-year-long Lost Weekend in Los Angeles, which found Lennon and Nielsen boozing it up almost every night. But they also found enough time between the drinking for Lennon to produce an album for Nielsen. In December 1980, two profound incidents would affect Nielsen greatly for years to come. On December 6, Robert Altman's film version of Popeye would have its world premiere in Los Angeles, where it would receive a plethora of poor reviews. Many of the critics were especially hard on the songs and score Nielsen had written for the movie. And then two days later, his friend John Lennon was assassinated in New York City. But rather than give in to his anger and depression, Nielsen dove headfirst into working with the National Coalition to Ban Handguns, which worked with 30 affiliated religious, labor, and nonprofit organizations with the goal of addressing the high rates of gun-related crime and death in American society. They sought to require licensing of gun owners, the registration of firearms, and banning private ownership of handguns. If there was any American musician who would get what Garnett was trying to say with the movie, it was going to be Harry Nilsson. And he was right. Garnett would get a work print of the film set up and arranged for a screening of one in Los Angeles. At the end of the screening, Nilsson had been moved to tears, in parts because of the power of the storytelling and in part because of his lingering resentment from losing one of his best friends to gun violence. To drive home the point of senseless violence within the movie, Garnett had placed a small poster of the cover of Double Fantasy, the John Lennon album released just a few weeks before his murder, over Kathleen's bed. Although that decision had been made on set a year earlier, it would help move the needle for Nielsen to accept the commission. Within a couple weeks, Harry Nielsen would send Garnett a copy of the song Lay Down Your Arms, the first major song Nielsen would write after Lennon's death. Yet, instead of something serious and somber, the song has a jaunty reggae feel that would not feel out of place on a Bob Marley album. I'll have YouTube links to all of the songs I've mentioned on this page for the episode on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com. Garnett would finish his final edit in the summer of 1982 and show it to executives at EMI Films. Despite the fact that Garnett hewed very close to the storyline that was approved and financed, EMI was unhappy with the film. Specifically, according to Garnett in a 2016 interview with Matthew Edwards of Cinema Retro Magazine, that while he made the slow and thoughtful character study of a woman who felt the need to take matters into her own hands when no one would help her, the company was hoping for a more commercial hit with some sexy rape scenes. EMI would try to sell the film off, and a number of American distributors were also disappointed that the rape scenes were a turn-off. The only two companies willing to pick the film up was Warner Brothers, the giant studio with the power to get a small film like Handgun into theaters, and the Samuel Goldwyn Company, which had been founded years before by Samuel Goldwyn Jr., the son of the MGM co-founder, which was still a few years away from becoming a very successful distributor, with films like One Spitten, the Sting concert movie Bring on the Night, and Desert Hearts. Garnett went with Warner Brothers and quickly regretted the decision. First, Warner's had a bunch of notes, mostly about toning down the rape sequence since it wasn't very sexy which, not so ironically, was the whole point of how the rape scene was shot. Rape is not sexy. Rape has never been sexy. Rape isn't about sex, but power. And if the men in power in Hollywood weren't going to get a sexy rape scene, at least the indication of the power of rape would be toned down. And then there was sudden impact. Unbeknownst to Garnett, 
Clint Eastwood was in the middle of making the fourth Dirty Harry movie, in which a gang rape victim, played by Eastwood's then paramour Sandra Locke, decides to seek revenge on her rapist ten years after the attack by killing them one by one. Garnett quickly surmised that Warners hadn't purchased his movie with the best of intentions, but instead bought it to essentially bury it, since it had so much in common with the new movie from the studio's biggest starring director. The studio, in turn, tried to convince Garnett otherwise, by coming up with a whole new advertising campaign for the film, which included giving the movie a new title, Deep in the Heart, and setting a January 18, 1984 release for the film at one of New York City's better movie theaters, the 436-seat Manhattan Twin, around the corner from the famed flagship Bloomingdale store at 59th and 3rd. The tagline on the new poster was pretty lousy, though. When passions flare into rage, the gun kept next to the bed is loaded with possibilities. When the film opened, it would get some pretty decent reviews from the likes of Amy Taubin in The Village Voice, who called the film admirable and amazing, and David Elliott of USA Today, who noted the film rose above the expected cliches of seduction, violence, and revenge, and singled out Karen Young's performance. But most New York-based critics, almost all men, would find the film didn't make its point as clearly as they thought it should have, as if Clint's recent treatise on rape and revenge was worthy of a comparison to Godard and Renoir. It also didn't help that Sudden Impact was still in the top three of the national box office after six weeks, and that the other screen at the Manhattan Twin was playing, you probably guessed it, Sudden Impact. Deep in the Heart would only play seven days at the Manhattan Twin, grossing $4,500 during its one and only week in theaters. Next door, Sudden Impact grossed $7,000 in its seventh week of release, while still playing in 65 other theaters in the area. The film would never play in Los Angeles, Chicago, anywhere in the state the movie was shot and set in, or anywhere else in America. Garnett was right all along. Warners buried the film. The film, as handgun, would play in the United Kingdom, Australia, Portugal, Iceland, and in a number of other foreign countries, whose critics praised the film for its tackling of a serious subject that is treated lightly in its own country. But it would never become any kind of hit anywhere. And whether it was titled Handgun or Deep in the Heart, this movie has never been released on any home video format in the United States. That's VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, DVD, HD DVD, Blu-ray, 4K Blu-ray, streaming, never once. But it has been released on some of these formats in other countries. You can find the film online in what appears to be a 480p transfer from a British DVD on a very popular streaming site. But why would you watch a 480p scan online when you can see a 4K print in a theater in the very near future? I'm not sure when Handgun will be opening in theaters other than early 2024. Fun City Editions has not contacted me about this release. They did not ask me to produce this episode. It is one of literally 2,000 movies I have on a list of potential episode topics that moved to the front of the line when I learned about its impending release. Because seriously, a forgotten film that really didn't get a first chance, being given a second chance all these years later, is something worth cheering something worth highlighting, something to be excited about. I will let you know on a future episode when I hear more about Handgun's upcoming theatrical release. And with that, we close this, 
our 124th episode of the 80s Movie Podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again very soon when our 125th episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about Handgun, a.k.a. Deep in the Heart. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 